it is my great pleasure to um, uh, to welcome you uh, in this beautiful place, and also to um, be here for the launch of George Green's um, book. As Roger said, this is the twelfth volume uh, that we've published as part of the New Criterion Prize, and um, we've been extremely proud over the years to publish what I think are um, going to be seen as extremely important uh, first books of poetry, in addition to um, uh, books of poems by uh, poets in later and mid-career. But it's the first books, I think, that are, are particularly special. Um, we have first books by uh, Adam Kirsch, uh, Jeffrey Brock, uh, Daniel Brown, and a number of others um, that I think um, will be um, uh, important uh, uh, publications uh, as we look back on them. And um, uh, certainly George Green's book is among those. Uh, in fact, um, all of us at the New Criterion are so extremely excited to uh, be publishing this book. We feel quite honored, in fact. Uh, George is a poet who uh, has had work um, in uh, a number of the best American poetry anthologies, uh, in Poetry 180 anthologies, uh, he has been uh, widely uh, celebrated and anthologized, and we feel um, that we really had a coup to, uh, to publish this book of poems. And um, I want to turn it over to him because I, if you've never heard George read before, um, it is uh, a, a signal event, and you will, uh, you will uh, long remember it and enjoy it. And I'm looking forward to it, so I want to uh, give way to it. But also, um, I want to just uh, uh, close by saying that uh, in the history of the prize, I have never heard from so many people who said that I got the book and I read it straight through and I loved the whole thing. Now that's a remarkable thing, to think that you would get a book of poems and actually read it from beginning to end. Sometimes you dip in, you see one you like, you put it down. This entire book has uh, been so uh, uniformly pleasurable um, uh, for so many of the people who have let us know um, that they're fans of George Green, that it is my delight to uh, give them to you now. George. Thank you. Thank you, David, for that generous introduction. Thank you, Roger, and Michael, new criterion. Uh, okay, I'm gonna read a couple of poems. Uh, the first one's in three parts, it's called Art Movies. And uh, I can give it a little intro since it's a reading. The first one's uh, Lust for Life, uh, which is 1956, directed by Vincent Minnelli. Uh, if you want to watch it, it's on Turner Classic Movies tomorrow morning at 7.35. <laughs> uh, okay, Art Movies, Lust for Life. I learned how artists act from Lust for Life, that movie where Kirk Douglas plays Van Gogh, refused to get a job. That's how you start. <laughs> and then you have to mutilate yourself, of course. How else could decent art be made or even contemplated? Cut off your nose, cut off your face, drink coffee all day long. And if the crows keep cawing in the corn, just shoot yourself, <laughs> and that will shut them up. <laughs> I learned a lot. I knew I was an artist. The critics thought the movie was just kitsch. 
How could you play that fag, Duke Wayne? Asked Kirk. That's John Wayne. I'm quoting him. Uh, the next one is Rembrandt. Now that's Alexander Korda, 1936. Charles Lawton is Rembrandt. This movie actually seems much older than it is. It's really creaky. And they show it on Channel 13 at least once a year. It, usually on a Friday night, like at 1 a.m. or something. Rembrandt. Quoting the King James Version constantly, he's someone that you just can't help respecting. And Gertrude Lawrence is in this. Too bad she didn't live to do The King and I on film, for after all, the I was written for her. But she'd have been too old by then. And Deborah Carr was prettier and younger. Carr would have got the part, I can assure you. Younger and prettier is always better, especially at the Met, where really hot and slender, cute sopranos rule this year. In poetry as well, it's obvious. The girls are chosen for their jacket photos. The guys all look as if they sang in hip and groovy bands. But Rembrandt's models, no, they just ain't hot, especially Saskia. How sweet that he is played by Charles Lawton. Maybe too sweet. How kind was Rembrandt, really? He wouldn't loan me money, I don't think. <laughs> and I'd have helped him gladly if I could. He knew vicissitudes. He calmed himself. He painted Jesuses we can't believe in. Uh, now the next one is The Agony and the Ecstasy, 1965, Carol Reed. Now, like Lust for Life, this is based on an Irving Stone novel. And um, Charlton Heston plays Michelangelo. Rex Harrison plays uh, Pope Julius II. And, uh, and also remember, remember that Charlton Heston was Ben-Hur, okay? <laughs> uh, the Agony and the Ecstasy. I learned a lot from this one, too. You have to wreck completely your first fresco. <laughs> Next, you head up to the mountaintop and see the Sistine Chapel ceiling in the clouds. And then you're on your back in agony. <coughs> the ecstasy is when the Pope goes back to bed. When will you finish it, he asks a million times. When will you finish it? <laughs> Charlton, way up there on the scaffolding, painting with chocolate pudding, so that when it falls into his mouth, it's pleasurable. <laughs> you're fine with this, except you don't like Charlton. A charioteer, okay. A genius, no. Who do you want, you snob? <laughs> Peter O'Toole? <laughs> Ben-Hur was good. Maybe a little long. <laughs> do you know that the author of Ben-Hur, Lou Wallace, was a Union general and later governor of New Mexico? The thing is, no one lived there then. Nobody. <laughs> he was the governor of maybe 12 or 13 guys. <laughs> the governor of nothing. <laughs> when will I finish it, Your Holiness? I'm thinking I can make a little skylight by banging my head against the ceiling hard. Uh, just two more. This one's called uh, The People in Hopper's Paintings. Um, you know, Edward Hopper, right? <laughs> uh, uh, the People in Hopper's Paintings. I think Dennis Hopper paints too. So <laughs> it's good to clarify. No, he's painted like 5,000 paintings. Sure. Uh, or painted. Uh, he painted 5,000 paintings. It seems to me that all they do is loaf and sit in torpid vacancy adrift within themselves. 
If only they'd go bowling or hike around the reservoir and stop staring portentously into the void, like baffled existentialists or Buddhists in college towns. They really need TV, it seems. Without it, they just lollygag in solar-heated rooms or on the porch, squinting into the glare of God knows what. That guy whose face is buried in a pillow may well have lost the will to live, or maybe he's had his fill of living without drapes or blinds <laughs> or window shades of any kind like everybody else in Hoppersville. <laughs> Those girls malingering in hotel lobbies, reading Tobacco Road or Lorna Dune, believe me, they're not going anywhere. And Rudolph Valentino couldn't get the time of day from them. They all just sit there like stuffed animals in flapper hats, brimming with crass expectancy or sinking in dull regret. In well-lit parlor cars, they're even more stuck up as each displays a randomness of individual concerns. So please don't kid yourself about that naked lady smoking in the sunlight. She's just a mental patient, <laughs> not an info. And after she has had her medication, they'll put her in the window like a plant. <laughs> uh, here's the uh, title poem. And then, uh, last one. Uh, Lord Byron had a club foot. Uh, Lord Byron's foot. <sighs> that day you sailed across the Adriatic, wearing your scarlet jacket trimmed in gold. You stood there on the quarterdeck, beglamored, but we were all distracted by your foot. Your foot, your foot, your lordship's skimpy foot, your twisted, clubbed, and clomping foot, your foot. <laughs> Well, Caroline went half mad for your love, but did she ever try to make you dance? No, never, never, never would that happen. No, never with your limping lordship's foot. Your foot, your foot, your lame and limping foot, your limp and lumbering, plump and plodding foot. <laughs> we see you posing with your catamite, a GQ fashion spread from 1812. But one shoe seems to differ from the other. Is that the shoe that hides your hobbled foot? <laughs> your foot, your foot, your game and gimping foot, your halt and hobbled, clumped and clopping foot. And why did Milbank sue you for divorce? Twas buggery. I really do doubt that. It was your foot. <laughs> it's all we think about, your stupid foot, your foot, your foot, your clumsy, clumping foot, your limping, gimping, stupid, stubby foot. After you had swum the Hellespont, a fin is better than a foot, they'd say. Behind your back, they'd say, a fin is better, meaning your lordship's foot was just a fin. A fin. A fin. Your foot was just a fin. Your fluffing, clumping foot was just a fin. And when you went to Cavalcina, masked, 
with Leporello's list only half male. What were your friends all whispering about? What had they been remembering? Your foot? Your foot. Your foot. Your halt and hampered foot. Your hobbled, clubbed, and clopping foot. Your foot. When Oliveri drew you on your deathbed, with laurel on your alabaster brow, he threw a blanket on your legs. But why? <laughs> Could it have been to cover up your foot? <laughs> your foot. Your foot. Your pinched and palsied foot. Your crimped and clumped and gimped, galumping foot. It's best if we just contemplate your bust. A bust by Torvaldson or Bartolini. And why is that? You asked. And why is that? So no one has to see your friggin' foot. <laughs> your foot, your foot, your clomping monster foot. Your foot, your foot, your foot, your foot, 